You're listening to Hosea, the Jealous Love of a Holy God, a Sunday school series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. The book of Hosea is a great book. It's a fantastic book. It's also a very difficult book. And I heard a quote this past week. It was that God sometimes blesses a poorly executed sermon of a bad translation of an obscure verse of a minor prophet. I thought that was funny because it's kind of like the worst of the worst of the worst, and then you get to the very end of it, and it's a minor prophet. And we're obviously studying the book of Hosea, which is a minor prophet. And so what that person is saying is that when you're preaching from a minor prophet, it is difficult to have God bless the, the teaching of the Scripture there. And I don't, obviously, I agree with what he's saying, but I think the point that he's making is, um, sometimes we come to the minor prophets and they're intimidating for us. They're difficult for us because, I mean, there's so much that is different in our culture from that culture. There are so, there's so many years that separate us from them. It seems like a lot of times what the prophets are saying are relevant to the people that they're saying them to, but not necessarily to us 2,750 years later. And so what we need to do is we need to be able to come at this book and find a way that this is not just not just a, an intellectual lesson for us, but helpful in our own spiritual walk. In many ways, it is true to study a minor prophet is more difficult because if you study the New Testament, you are studying a book that is written for believers that are in Christ and attempting to live out their faith within the church context, okay, within a godly, ungodly society. And so when you study a New Testament book, you are immediately struck with the relevance of the book. The writer is writing to Christians who are trying to live out their faith in the church within their ungodly society they live in. So it's obvious to us how important what they're saying is. But we come to the Old Testament, and we know that it's written before the time of Christ. Um, we know that some of it is pointing us to Christ in the future. Um, much of it exposes the humanity's need for a Savior how much human beings are in need of a Savior, um, we record in the Old Testament how we got from creation to the cross. We see poetry and wisdom literature that cuts through the culture and custom to our hearts and to our minds. And so we can look at the Old Testament and find things that are helpful to us. But when we come to the minor prophets, we say, but they're just telling everybody around them that judgment's coming. I mean, that's, that's a lot of what they do. How is that relevant for us? I mean, judgment came, right? We, we, we know the history. We know the book of First and Second Kings and Chronicles. We know what happened. We know the Assyrians took over. We know the Babylonians took over. We, we know all of those things. So why are we now studying about a man years before those events took place pointing people to destruction and death and judgment? How is that helpful for us? I hope that you'll see that in some ways it is. And I'll share with you in a moment why. Um, The basic ingredients of all the minor prophets is that it begins with a warning of impending judgment. We find the description of the sin that's occurring in the land. We find the description of the coming judgment, a call for repentance, and a promise of future deliverance. So those five things we find in all of the minor prophets. I think if we're being honest and we're to say, what, what is your initial response to 
the, the minor prophets. When you come to your Bible reading throughout the year or whatever it is, and you come to the minor prophets, how do you respond to them? What do you know about them? Um, if we were to go through reciting the Old Testament, we'll start with Job. And just like if I was to ask you, okay, what are these books teaching? What are the main points? What are the most important verses? Like what's going on in these books? You would get a number of them. If I said the book of Job, what's the main point of the book of Job? Suffering, right? Okay, so it's the story of a man who goes through terrible suffering and eventually finds out that uh, that trusting in God is more important, that God is bigger than all of that, and he has a plan and purpose, and so you can trust God through suffering, okay? If we did the book of um, Psalms, what do we got there? Praise, rejoicing, people going through dark valleys and difficulties, but still trusting God. We see the emotional side of of a man who is, many men, but who are trying to trust God and going through these dark, dark valleys, and, and sometimes on the mountaintops, praising God. So there's so much heart in the book of Psalms. We get to the book of Proverbs, and we know it's what? Wisdom, right? There's so much wisdom to be had there. You go to Isaiah. Okay, now we get into the major prophets. What do we know about Isaiah? What's interesting about Isaiah? Okay, the gospel in a nutshell. First 39 verses, the Old Testament, first 39 chapters, the Old Testament law, last 27 chapters, the, the gospel. I mean, it's grace. Isaiah is, is an incredible prophet. The book of Isaiah is amazing. Um, if you also remember, there's some great times in Isaiah you look to and you can just like, here I am, Lord, send me. I mean, who doesn't know that? Um, we also have Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the, the greatest chapter in the Old Testament. I mean, maybe in the, in the Bible. What an incredible chapter that we, we have there. We also know that Isaiah walked naked and barefoot for three years because um, <laughs> God told him to. So he walked through the land naked and barefoot because that was a sign against Egypt and against Cush that they would be judged somehow. Um, so there's some interesting things that happened in Isaiah, and, and we know a lot of these things. How about Jeremiah? Weeping prophet, right? The prophet who could not stop preaching despite failure to see any results. He even wanted to. He, but the word was just tucked up in his heart and it had to come out. Um, we know that he wore a yoke around his neck. And we have the incredible verse about God having plans for Israel, even though they were in the middle of such sin um, and, and judgment. Book of Lamentations, Jeremiah is weeping, his lamenting. Um, Ezekiel, I mean, we all know the Valley of Dry Bones. We know the crazy analogies with his life where for 390 days he lied on his left side and that was judgment against Israel. Then for 40 days he lied on his right side. That was judgment against um, Judah. And so, I mean, there's there's fascinating things in each of these books. Then you get to Daniel. Okay, I mean, Daniel is a vegetarian who likes to pray and gets along well with lions. I mean, God's deliverance. That's probably a better way to summarize the book. <laughs> so, so I mean, we've got these books, right? And we're familiar with them. And you probably read them with some anticipation about what you know is already coming. And then you come to a book like Hosea, and, and it's like, what do we know about Hosea? I think m- most people would be like, I, th- I think maybe he married a prostitute. That's about as far as, far as we get with the book of Hosea. And then if I was to say Joel, Amos, and Obadiah, you'd be like, no clue what's going on in those books. I don't, what, are, what are those about? 
You get to Jonah and you're back to big fish. Yes, I got that one, right? So what I'm, what I'm saying is, um, when we get to the minor prophets as believers, I think this is an aspect, a, a portion of the Bible that we, we, for the most part, neglect. For the most part, we don't really know what's going on in these books and we don't really have a desire to learn. Maybe some of us do, we just don't know how to learn or, or how to go about that. And so, um, why should we study a minor prophet then? Why, why even do this? Why not have a series, another series on maybe First Timothy? I love the idea of preaching through First Timothy. So why not do that? Well, first of all, I think a minor prophet's helpful because we will learn much about the character and the will of God. Okay, we'll, we'll learn so much about God, about who he is, about what he desires. Um, in Hosea in particular, we find that God invites Hosea into his suffering into the way that that God is experiencing this unfaithfulness of his people. Hosea is invited to experience a taste of that. Um, Hosea's life, his sorrow, his heartbreak are a picture to Israel of the sorrow and heartbreak that they have caused God. So we see God's heart revealed in a way that we can begin to understand. I think this is fascinating about the book of Hosea. It's really not... This intellectual book, I mean, Hosea seems, if you study the, the Hebrew and stuff, he seems like a brilliant man. Um, and, and his, the way he puts his thoughts down, they're very, they're very unique. They're very interesting. Um, in fact, we'll read some quotes in a minute, but, um, a lot of scholars consider this the hardest book to translate in the Old Testament because he just had such an incredible vocabulary. His Hebrew was very difficult and he seems really, really brilliant. And so, um, there's, there's a lot interesting here, but what's, most interesting to me is that it really is about the heart of God. I mean, God's love, his jealous love for his people and the heartbreak that he's been caused because they keep running from him and sinning with other gods and with other nations. <clears throat> in, what we, in what we see God commanding Hosea to do, we see his incredible scandalous love that God has for his whoring bride. We also will see not just about the character of God, but we will be forced to confront the sinfulness and the hopelessness of man. That's, that's what the minor prophets help us to do. Um, just as Hosea, the prophet, reveals God, Gomer, the whore, represents Israel, and by extension, all those who fail to worship the God of heaven as he deserves. It's just right in your face. It is this this ugly, disgusting, revolting, vile, repugnant, debased picture of man's sin and of what man's sin is against the holy God who loves them and, and created them for his good and for, for their glory and for his glory and their good. I get that right. Um, we look into Gomer's eyes and it's like looking into a mirror sometimes. And we know that as we look into the mirror, you're going to hate everything you see about yourself, right? That's what happens. We look at Gomer and we see who we were without Christ, running from God. And so it's helpful to be confronted with our sinfulness and the hopelessness of humanity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 14, I'm going to read some verses here because they, they speak to Paul writing about how this book, a book like the Minor Prophets, could be very helpful to us. 
And he is, he does speak specifically about some of the events that happen um, earlier on with Israel. But I think if he was to continue his story, he would clearly get to books like Hosea. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 14, Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that your fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. And what he's doing, what he's establishing at the beginning is that those there's a lot of time period that separates Israel of the Old Testament and the church that he's writing to today. He's saying essentially we're the same. We have the same God. We are drinking from the same fountain, and that fountain is Christ. And so, so we don't need to put this huge gap between us and them because they're God's people who are looking to God in faith, and so are we. He goes on and says in verse 6, Now these were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So we see their negative example, and we say, let's not follow in those footsteps. Neither be idolaters, as some of them were, as is written, the people shall sit down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted. And you find it how like interesting that is, that he's actually saying they were tempting Christ, Right? Like they weren't just tempting God or, or Yahweh or whatever. They were tempting Christ and they were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur, don't complain, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for examples and they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There is no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. And the reason I read those last couple of verses there is because I know that verse 13, about being tempted and God creating a way of escape, is a verse that we use often. It's a verse that we, we cling to often, right? It's a verse that... We often use with our, in our child rearing, with our kids. Um, we are often using this for Spencer because he, he will say, Satan made me do it, or I, I couldn't help it, or there's nothing I could do. And we, no, God, I mean, I know that it's hard, but, um, your, your flesh is powerful, but God will wait, make you a way of escape if you will trust Him, if you're trying to do what's right there. And so, so we use that verse, but I love how that verse is connected to everything that happened to Israel in the Old Testament. Right? That, that's what it flows from. And it's connected to the, to the faithfulness of God in all of those times. And so if we can see that the faithfulness of God and the sinfulness of humanity are, are both here in this book, and they're both the same things that we're experiencing now today, I think that studying a minor prophet can be extremely helpful to us. Pastor. Yeah, you know, it just it struck me when you're going through this, what's, what's the, the, the idea of the book and what's behind it. And I think the sinfulness of man is something that we don't talk about enough. And when we don't, it cheapens our gospel. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Say, yeah, I, I deserve to be saved. But God is, he yeah. has a gift with me. And when we see it in the Old Testament and we're reminded of it, we remember that he got no deal. Yeah. Yep. I think I nailed it. It doesn't matter. But the truth is, 
you know, you hear preaching today about just ask Jesus to be your Savior without understanding our depravity. Mm-hmm. It does cheat them what we've been given in Christ. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, people can sing songs about how great God is, and people can sing songs about how great grace is, but really those words have no meaning until you understand your desperate need for them. Right? Caitlin. That was 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 14. And so we will see, so number one, we will learn about the character and the will of God. Number two, we will be forced to confront the sinfulness and hopelessness of man. And number three, we will see more clearly the bridge between the law and the gospel. And this is one of the interesting things that I think is, is really almost unique to the prophets. When we see in the Old Testament, we find God giving the law to Israel. And we know that much of the law is unconditional, or much of the covenant is unconditional. That God promised this, and, there, and he didn't really make any conditions on it. But there is a lot in God's promises here that actually are conditional. Okay? Many of the blessings that they would experience were conditional upon their obedience, on their faithfulness to God. And so what we see happening in the prophets is we see Israel coming from this following God and trying to do right and being God's people to sinning, turning away from God constantly again and again and again and seeing some of God quoting what he's already said in the law that if you don't do this, I will not be your God or I will not. And, and we see those things kind of come to fruition. And so if we don't study the prophets, the minor prophets in particular here, then we, we don't really see why this gospel is absolutely so necessary. We don't see how Israel fell so completely, so entirely. And what the minor prophets do is they show us again and again and again how sinful Israel was, how Israel had broken all of what they had covenanted with God to do and that God was completely just in his judgment of them, but that how this just God who judged them was still finding a way to rescue them. And that's where the cross comes in. That's where the gospel comes in, right? And so I'm afraid if we, if we skip the minor prophets, we kind of get the law and we get the promises and and certainly we see Israel faltering a little bit, but if we don't get the minor prophets, we're like, well, all of a sudden there's 400 years of silence and then we have this cross in the gospel. What exactly happened? And then what the Minor Prophets does, it says, what happened is Israel got worse and worse and worse and worse, and they were warned again and again and again and again. And God was so merciful and gracious to them with giving them all these people to shout to them to repent, but they didn't repent. And that's why they fell. And that's why there were 400 years of silence. And that's why the cross is, is so necessary, right? So the, the Minor Prophets help us to bridge this gap. The Prophets connect the necessary consequences of the law with the will of God to save lawbreakers. That's what they do for us. In fact, sometimes we will read the book of Hosea and it will almost seem like Hosea has some kind of personality disorder going on, a multiple personality disorder, where in one verse he will say, I will turn my back on you and destroy you and your children, you wicked, evil sinners. I mean, that's the message in one verse. Very next verse. But I love you and I will rescue you and make you my pure bride. Get these things like back to back. And it's so neat for me to see how, you know, this, this first part, that I will destroy you, you wicked and evil sinner, is a, is a fulfillment of the promise of the law if they were to break their part of the law. And yet the second part is a fulfillment of the promise of the law that God still desires to save sinners. 
I will destroy you because that's what I promised to do. I will rescue you because that's what I promised to do. That's really what we're getting here. So, that's the introduction to the series. Introduction to the book of Hosea. Kevin DeYoung said, Hosea is first, is the first and one of the biggest and one of the strangest and one of the most glorious books of the minor prophets. I think it is. It's a fascinating, very unique book. But another commentator said that Hosea is not an easy book. It begins with a prophet receiving a command to marry a prostitute and promptly describes the birth of his three children, each of whom is given a bizarre but significant name. From here, the book swiftly plunges into a maze of warnings, micro-sermons, poems, and laments, and through them all, it is swiftly and evasively alludes to biblical texts and incidents, mixes metaphors, and changes topics seemingly at random. Many of the themes and much of the vocabulary are of the great literary prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel originate in Hosea. And so what that person is saying is that Hosea, first of all, I mean, chapters 4 to 14 are almost a collection of of the best of his 40 years of preaching or 50 years of preaching, however long he, he was preaching. And so it really does seem like this conglomeration of different sermons that were just kind of put together. And so you have laments, you have, you have um, prophecies, you have judgment, you have all of these things mixed in together. But what is interesting about Hosea is that he is like constantly referencing back to the book of Genesis and Exodus. Like he, it's like Hosea knows those books. He has them memorized. They're a part of who he is. And so as he writes, like this allusions to what is being said in Genesis and Exodus are constantly coming out. But what else is interesting about Hosea is that when you look at the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, much of the what they say and the way they say what they say is very similar to how Hosea said it. So Hosea comes first in this in this grouping of prophets, and it's almost like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and, Limit- and, and Ezekiel had read. Hosea's prophecy, read these scrolls, and those just became a part of them and their message as well. And so Hosea is a very significant book. He's just a brilliant man in that he was quoting often here, and then it's really neat to see how God used his writings in the lives of these other, quote-unquote, major prophets. So let's read Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. This is as far as we'll get today. Hosea verse chapter 1, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Here's his introduction. It's brief. He's very clear that what he's writing are the words of God that came to him. And he tells us who he was who was king while he was doing his ministry. In one sense, we know very little about the prophet named Hosea. We don't know his trade. We don't know what he did prior to him being a prophet. And yes, many of the prophets did have trades. That's actually one of, just an interesting thought that I had this week, that there was a lot of prophets that they were prophets and they also did other things, right? And so we don't know what what else he did. We don't know his background, where he was trained. Clearly he had a great knowledge of the, of the law, but we don't know where he got all those things from. Beery is his, named his father. That's the only part of his family lineage that we know. No idea who Beery is or 
or how to say his name, really. <laughs> um, we just know that he's listed as, as a father there. We don't know where he was born. We don't know how old he was when he started prophesying or when he died. Uh, we really don't know. We don't even know for sure exactly where he lived, probably in the city of Samaria in Israel, um, almost surely in Israel. But we don't know a lot about those aspects of his life. If you were to say, do you know much about so-and-so? Probably the first things you're going to go to are, well, I mean, who are they? Who are their family? Where do they come from? When do they live? And we don't know those aspects. What do they do? I mean, don't know. But in another sense, we know Hosea better than just about any of the prophets. Because his life becomes an analogy of his message. God used Hosea's life, his family, his wife, his children, to be this picture to all of Israel about the message that Hosea was preaching. And so that that is incredibly fascinating. We're more acquainted with his family than just about any other servant of God in the Bible. And when you think about some of the servants of God in the Bible, you think it's kind of interesting that we know almost nothing about their family, right? There's so many of the disciples we know nothing about. So many other prophets we know very little about. Some of them we know that they were married or not married, but we don't know details of their lives. And yet Hosea, we know so many details. We know who their kids were, who their stepkids were, um, who their wife was, what her sexual life was like. I mean, we know some really strange details about Hosea and about his family. And so we know him in a very unique way. His marriage and his children are intrinsically linked with what God is trying to teach Israel through him. Every day Hosea goes home, he is reminded of the pain of unfaithfulness and the judgment that's coming. We get an intimate glimpse of his family and the pain that he endured as a husband and stepfather. He is called the prophet of the soaring heart and for very good reason. I can't imagine living the life that he lived. Hosea preached for about 40 years, from 755 to 715 BC. As possible, it was um, 765 to 710 BC, so that was the longest version, but between 40 and 55 years was the length of his ministry. Um, so you might ask, how do we come up with that date? And I think it's interesting because um, often I've heard people say things before and they're like, this is the time that he preached. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. How do you know that? How does anybody ever know that, right? Here's some of the reasons that you, we can estimate that those were the dates. At the very beginning, we, the verse that we just read, he mentions four of the kings of Judah. He mentions Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uzziah began, par, he must have began partway through Uzziah's reign because Uzziah reigned from 767 to 740. So we know that he had to begin before 740. Jotham was 732, Ahaz 716, Hezekiah began in 716. So if he, if he missed her during Hezekiah's reign as well, he must have been at least to 716. So before 740 to 716. Then he mentions one king of the nation of Israel. Okay. I'm going to, maybe I should explain that in just a second, but he mentions Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam the second. He was reigning from 782 to 753, so we know that Hosea must have started before 753 if he ministered during his time as well. Now, one of the things interesting is Hosea would have preached through the reign of seven of the kings, the seven remaining kings of Israel, but he only mentions the first one. 
And he really only preached for two years, likely, possibly more, but likely around two years of Jeroboam's reign. But what happened is after Jeroboam's reign, the kingdom started to fall apart. So Jeroboam's son was killed within a month of him taking the throne. Um, within six months after that, the king who killed him and, and made himself king was also killed and somebody else. So the, the kingdom and the, the, the idea of this is our king, that started to fall apart. And so it seems like Jeroboam is just kind of like a representative of the kings of Israel. So I mentioned something quickly there that, that if, you're, if you're really trying to follow along and you don't know, then it's going to be really confusing. So we know the story of Saul as the first king of, of Israel, united Israel. Second king was David. Third king was Solomon. Fourth king was Rehoboam. What happened when Rehoboam became king? Kingdom split, right? Rehoboam was foolish, and it was also what God had promised to do to Solomon. So Rehoboam was, was foolish, didn't take the wise counsel that, God, that Solomon had left him, and as a result, the kingdom was split, and the first king of the nation of Israel became Jeroboam the first. So Jeroboam the first is now the king of the ten northern tribes of Israel, and then the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, are under still Rehoboam's reign, which is even more confusing because it's like Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Couldn't they have picked like names a little bit different than that? <laughs> but they're very similar, right? And so, so now you have two kingdoms. You don't have united Israel. And it stayed that way until both of those kingdoms were ultimately destroyed or, or um, overtaken. And so Israel, if you follow the lineage of the kings of Israel, I think there's around 20 kings, but I'm, I could be wrong in that number. It's really close to 20. All of the kings were bad. One of them was like not as bad as the rest, but they were all bad. And then if you follow the line of Judah's kings, about half of the kings were good, and the kings that were good reigned a lot longer than the kings that were bad. So you actually have the kingdom being under the rule of good kings for a lot of the time until toward the end of their of of their of that kingdom. So we're looking at Hosea preaching to the kingdom of Israel. Okay, that's on this side. This is all of the bad kings. This is a lot earlier on, and this is at the end of that kingdom. So this is the last seven kings of Israel. He was the prophet that was preaching to Israel at ground zero when, when the whole kingdom was destroyed or, or overtaken by the Assyrians. So he is the one that was the last voice sent by God to cry out to this people to repent. Okay, to, to stop sinning and to turn back. And so Jeroboam is the first king of the last seven, and he just doesn't list the last seven, but we'll talk about what the kingdom was like at that time to get a, a clear picture. I'm giving you all of this information because I think um, part of the reason that we neglect the minor prophets is because we really don't know what we're jumping into when all of a sudden we start reading, right? Have you ever felt like you started reading and you, you heard names of people and places and it was all foreign to you and you had no idea what was going on in the history of that time and so it really didn't, like you didn't care who was being judged and why? That's how I felt when I've studied the minor prophets in the past. And so I thought us having an idea of, of who they were and what time it was and who the kings were and what the nation was like at the time, that might be helpful as we jump into the book. So his contemporaries were... Um, Joel and Amos, but Joel was more preaching to Judah. And so Amos, it was kind of like Amos passed the torch to Hosea. They, they're 
uh, ministries overlapped for probably five to ten years or so. And Amos was one of the one of the last prophets, prophets to Israel. Hosea was the last. Um, he was the prophet that watched the kingdom of fall and many of his prophecies come to fruition. And can you imagine how, how sad that would be for Hosea to know that he spent 35 years preaching to this nation, telling them to repent, telling them exactly what would happen if they didn't repent. And then he sees all of those things happen. And he was the one that got to see all of his prophecies actually come to fruition. Um, I can guarantee that he would have wept. That there would have been no, I told you so, with a smirk on his face. Right? This would have been devastating for Hosea. To see his people be judged so thoroughly by God. So what was Israel like when Hosea was preaching? Well, prior to Jeroboam's reign, there was a time of uncertainty. They had a couple of kings kind of close together there that, that ended the reigns very briefly. And there was, there was uncertainty because there was Syria and Assyria. Both of those nations were becoming very strong. They were starting to take over more and more nations surrounding them. And it seemed like Israel might be the next target. And so there was a period of, of great uncertainty. But um, Jeroboam seemed to be a very capable king. He was a, an evil king, but a, a capable king. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23, I'll read a couple verses here. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, and this is Jeroboam the second, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned forty and one years. And Samaria would be referring to the, the capital city of, of Israel. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. So he was an evil king. But, verse 25, he restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord, God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-hefer. So what we find there is that somehow Jeroboam was actually able to capture some of the lands that Israel had lost in the past. He expanded their borders. He was, I mean, in a time of uncertainty, this king came in and he was a strong king. And he was able to turn the economy around a little bit. He was able to get things going well for Israel. And he was able to destroy some of the enemies that were creeping in on Israel's borders. He had just solidified the land. And at this point, Israel feels very good about themselves. In fact, one of the things that Amos says in his judgment against Israel, this is what he says. He says in Amos 6.13, You which rejoice in a thing of naught, which say, Have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? And what Amos is saying is, You're rejoicing in that you're so strong, but you don't realize that you have no strength. That you're so weak. You're rejoicing because you've taken horns with your own strength. And the idea of horns would be the, the, this a kingdom or a land or a nation. You have destroyed something and, and overtaken some king out of your own strength. And you don't realize how foolish you are that you have no strength. He goes on in verse 14 says, But behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, saith the Lord God of hosts, and they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hemath unto the river of the wilderness. He says, you don't understand. God is going to raise up a nation against you. 
This, this victory that you're rejoicing in so greatly, uh, it's, it's not going to be long-lasting. Judgment's coming. And so the time of Jeroboam was marked by prosperity, peace, and political stability. Their enemies were weakened. Assyria and Syria were weakened because there was a lot of infighting among those nations. And so they were becoming less of a threat. What happened was all of this stability and peace and prosperity led to spiritual complacency. And how often that is the case. When we read the Old Testament, you're struck over and over again how when things are going well for Israel, they forget God. They have no need for God. And yet it's only when the captivity comes, when they're brought into slavery and imprisonment, when they're suffering, that they finally recognize their need for God. The need for God didn't change from one time to the other, right? And isn't it true so many times in our lives, it's really when we go through difficulty and sorrow that we realize how much we need God, how little control we have. This should be, I mean, this book, it's a warning and reminder for us. They became spiritually complacent because everything was going well. And they had, I mean, you can't, you can't mention a name of a country in the world today that is marked more by prosperity, peace, and political stability. Right? There's not a nation that's safer, that's more politically stable, that's more peaceful, that's more prosperous than Canada. I mean, I know there are other nations that, were, that are close and you could probably, you know, throw those names in with Canada, but we're, we're at the very top of that pile. Rather than the gifts turning people to God, they allured them away from God and they put them to sleep, spiritually to sleep. And so Hosea was to call a sleepy people to wake up. But you can imagine the difficulty of Hosea's job because Amos has been calling this people to repent for a long, long time, right? Prophets before Amos were calling this people to repent. That they, They've been sinning for years and years and years. And what they had just seen is their nation going from a less stable, less prosperous time to more stability and more prosperity. And, and this is in the midst of Amos's preaching of judgment that's coming. And so they had already learned to turn out the preaching of God's servant, right? They, they, they learned that, you know what, the, the nation is getting better and Amos is saying it's going to get worse. These things don't work. And so I'm not going to listen to him. And, and Hosea comes in at this point when they're on their kind of still their way up at the very end of Jeroboam's reign. <clears throat> and so he would have had a very tall task in what he was preaching. And maybe that's part of the reason that God made such a, a significant analogy here with his life. Maybe, maybe why that's why when we look at Hosea and we look at what he went through, it's so drastic. I mean, him marrying this whore and having these children, all of these things are so crazy to think about. And they would have struck... Israelites as strange, right? They would have caught their attention. And it was almost like God was sending something, one more thing to catch their attention to try and draw them back. And it didn't work. Two themes of the book. We're almost done here. Two themes of the book were judgment for God's people and the restoration by God's grace. And those themes are run throughout the book. Can you can imagine if you were speaking to two groups of people and they asked what Hosea was about, and the first group of people was rich and spiritually asleep or dead, you would tell them that the book of Hosea is to afflict the comfortable. And that's really what the book does. It takes those who are comfortable and, and asleep and, and spiritually dead, 
and it afflicts them. It tells them, don't, don't be comfortable. But if you were teaching this book to the broken and the humble, you could say that, honestly, this book is to comfort the afflicted. And it does do that. There's, there's great comfort in knowing that God's jealous love, it, it's, it's greater than our sin. I mean, it, it, he loves us in, in spite of our sin. He longs to rescue us and bring us back and make us his pure bride. So Hosea beautifully intertwines pronouncements of judgment with whispers of hope. The outline of Hosea is chapters 1 to 3 is Hosea's life as an allegory. Really what we get in Hosea 1 to 3 is just this story of Hosea's life. And then that life is not mentioned again for the rest of the book. From chapter 4 to 14, it is the compilation of all of Hosea's preaching. And I think in many ways, it's an explanation of that allegory. What, what is the life supposed to teach, right? What is happening here that we see in flesh, what does that mean spiritually? That's what chapter 4 to 14 is. We'll spend a lot of our time in, in 1 to 3 and probably some of our time in 4 to 14. And so that is the first lesson. The takeaways from that lesson, God required much of his servant Hosea. And it's okay for God to require much of us. And Hosea calls us to see the heart of God, just not just the mind of God. So as we think about the book of Hosea, know that we're going to get into what was God? How, how, does, how did the rebellion and the sin of Israel affect God? Okay, what, what, is, what is akin to that that we can understand? And so that's going to be the book of Hosea. I'm looking forward to getting into the text next week. Thank you for coming. See you later.